Welcome back, everybody. We are here at the Now It's Dark movie podcast. It has been such a long time since we have been together, but uh, you know me. I am Mike. And this is Tim. You and I have been gone for quite a while, but there's been a lot that has been going on. So I just want to ask you, Tim, how have you been? I've been pretty good. It's been a busy couple of months. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've both been working on various projects. We, we did a short film together, which I'm editing now and will be uh, released fairly soon. That's right. And as well, the, the Busan International Film Festival, the 23rd Busan International Film Festival, the biggest film festival in Asia, right in our back door. We were involved in that. I, I saw a ton of movies there. But before we get into that, how have you been? I've been good. I got married over the summer, and I went on a, a honeymoon, and uh, we also moved house and everything. So I think mm. there were a lot of contributing factors to why we've been gone for such a long time. Yeah, it's true. And I, I should mention as well, I've been in Canada for a while as well, my mm-hmm. brother's wedding, visiting family, and there's been a lot of stuff going on. Yeah, that's right. But we are back here, and uh, I think both of us are keen to be a little bit more consistent with this. And you know, we say this quite a lot, that we're going to be more <laughs> consistent, and maybe the way that the Now It's Dark movie podcast goes is that we just post when we feel like it. (laughs) Unfortunately, that's just the way things are because we we do have so many other uh, things going on, but we'll do our best to be as consistent as possible. And we both wanted to do this particular episode because of of the Busan International Film Festival and and how big it is. I mean, for for Asia and, and, you know, film lovers based in Asia, this is often your first chance to see some of these big movies from Europe, from Asia, from all around the world. And often these movies don't get wide releases, right? especially in Korea. right? And if they do get a wide release, if they are in a foreign language, you don't get the English subtitles. I know, and that's that's a frustrating thing. It's it's often your only chance to see, for example, Korean movies or Chinese movies with English subtitles. So that's that's a huge part of the festival is just, you know, being exposed to these movies for the first time. And we're also lucky, too, because a lot of these movies won't be released in North America for, for quite some time. And Biff is such a phenomenal time for people who uh, who work in media. For instance, you know, I do I do work at the radio station in Busan. I had to. I had the opportunity to interview people like Justin Chang, critic for the Los Angeles Times, and uh, I had to. I got to interview filmmaker Eric Koo, which was great. I had a mm. chat with the director of the the new Robert Pattinson movie, Damsel, for instance. So mm. Biff is an exciting time because of work, but also because of the people who come to Busan. When also Jason Blum of, of Blumhouse Productions came, and, and we both saw him speak. I mm-hmm. saw a Q&A. You saw a press conference that yep. he did. It was really cool to to hear him talk about his plans to kind of take over the horror world with these, you know, small budget films that do very well. Like Get Out is a perfect example. Halloween, which is out right now, which is doing extremely well at the North American box office. And yeah, as of... As of uh, this recording, it's about two weeks in for Halloween in the United States box office, and it is just making bank. Jason Blum makes it look so easy yeah. to just make a movie for 6 to $10 million, and then in 
you know, four or five days already raked in 80. It's officially the second, I think, Halloween film in terms of gross, mm-hmm. and it, it may be soon the first. Yeah. And and one key part of this is bringing in the original players, like especially John Carpenter to executive produce and, and Jamie Lee Curtis to, to reprise her role as Laurie Strode. But we're, we're here not just to talk about Halloween. There are so many good movies that played at Biff this year, and we're going to kind of get into our top five. From Biff. Just so you know, we may be divulging some minor spoilers for some of these movies. These are movies from all around the world that you should kind of be in the lookout, I think, in the year to come when they when they come to your theater or when they become available in some form. And, you know, some of these movies that we're going to talk about, for instance, uh, my number five movie uh, premiered at Cannes. So mm. I don't pretend to know your uh, your local cinema's schedule for instance or you know when when you're going to get this movie or if you're going to get this movie at all but uh, some of these perhaps will be released in the future some of these may have already been released and we should also mention too amazon and netflix continue to dominate the streaming giants have really gotten involved more in in producing original films and financing original films i mean at least one of the films on my list uh, involve Netflix and or Amazon. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're just becoming bigger players by the day here. They really are. They really are. So we, uh, yeah, we didn't actually want to do this podcast on Halloween, but that was a Biff movie. We both saw it right. at Biff. It's not in my top five. It's it not a- in mine either. Okay, all yeah. right. But that doesn't mean we didn't enjoy it. It was a solid film. It was a solid film. But let's get started. How many movies did you actually watch at Biff this year? I believe I saw 22, Mm -hmm. which my ability to see films was slightly limited because I I had a broken foot and was hobbling around on crutches. You had a broken foot and you still saw 22 movies and you call that limited ability. Well, (laughs) I I did get a great workout uh, hobbling around from one movie theater to the other and you know, catching subways and whatnot. Um, I got a great upper body workout, I gotta say. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I saw 16 movies, so a few, quite a bit fewer than yours. But like I said, I was doing the interviews. Right. That was part of my thing. You, you got important work to do. Yeah, I had important stuff to do. That's right. That's yeah. right. Uh, but yeah, so let's go. We both saw, I mean, 16 movies in eight days is nothing to sniff at. No, no. And we've both got a top five list. I'm sure that we will... Overlap. Yeah, we'll have some crossover. We will. Have we, some we've crossover. talked about some of the movies already, and and I know how how much you like some of the movies that I liked as well. That's right. But let's start off with number five. Uh, I'll start off with my number five, the house that Jack built, the latest by Lars von Trier, starring Matt Dillon. I saw this movie at four thirty in the morning, <laughs> on a on a Friday night, and I was very tired watching it. It's a very long movie, like two and a half hours. But it's really stuck with me. The, the longer I've, I've kind of let it sit, the, the more this movie has stuck with me. It's about a serial killer in the 70s, played by Matt Dillon, and, and it goes through various periods in his life. I think what makes this movie so interesting is, is Lars von Trier's unique ability to kind of combine, I guess, self-analysis with social analysis in a way that you know, the the surface of the movie is just very compelling and almost kind of like pop art. His use, of, for example, of David Bowie's fame has just come back to me again and again. I, I can't explain exactly why it's so compelling, but there is this kind of cool, immediate pop art quality to a lot of the stuff Lars von Trier has been doing in the, in the past few years. 
I, I believe this movie is very much in the in the same vein as a lot of you know his recent work. It has you know these chapters, these these various chapters. It has you know this this kind of overarching commentary on, on you know society on on himself. There's this supernatural element with Bruno Gantz, the German actor playing Virgil, and you know him and Matt Dillon kind of visiting the underworld. There's all this stuff that Lars von Trier has done before, but there's this incredibly graphic and, and grotesque horror involved. I mean, some of the most disturbing images I've seen in a long time. We're talking about violence against children, mm. violence against women, in ways that are extremely uncomfortable to watch. But I believe the movie is ultimately commenting on how violence, media, and sort of, I guess, this desire for fame, for recognition, this extreme obsession with the self, have all become part of our world today. And also Lars von Trier's world, because he's ultimately criticizing himself, Hmm. his portrayal of violence in his films, his treatment of women in films, and, and so on. And that's very explicit in this film. Do you think he's doing it um, sort of as a as a regret? Is he ex- as expressing his regret of the way that he has treated people like like women in his movies? Yes and no. I, I think he's, in a way, it's a bit of a cop out because he is critiquing himself, but he's also showing it again. He's also portraying violence again. He's he's doing everything he's criticized himself for again in this movie. Mm. So. Yes and no. I, I think that particular part of the film is not the strongest part, and, and that's not the reason I, I selected it. I think it's more just the imagery, the the violence of the film, the, the use of music. I mean, there's really only one pop song that plays throughout, and that's David Bowie's fame. Mm-hmm. But it's just so compelling, and so it burrows into your mind and into your consciousness in a way that I can't quite describe. Right, But right. it's stuck with me. It's disturbed me. And I've been curious to revisit the film, and and will do it when it when it is eventually released in wide release. Now you said you saw this movie at four thirty in the morning, and for those who don't live in Busan, that's because the Busan International Film Festival has something called Midnight Passion, right? Which is a triple feature that starts at midnight, right? So this was movie number three, right? Yes, and that was a bit of a questionable move on the programmer's part to mm-hmm. put a two and a half hour plus movie at the end of a three movie billing. Yeah. But, you know, it it nonetheless that was that was the only time you could see it. They had one slot for this film and it was at that time. That was that was unusual that there was only one slot, one showing for The House That Jack Built. It was. Yeah, that was. That's not common. I think that maybe was the only movie that did that except for the closing picture. Right. Master Z only also only got uh, one one showing. Right. And it's also another reason why I want to revisit the film is because I was a little bit zonked out at that point. Right, right, right. But I think that's also a testament to how powerful the imagery of the film was because despite being that tired, despite it being the third movie of that program, it stuck with me. It's, it's, it's in my head. And I, I guess I can't quite fully articulate why, but there is something compelling about this movie that really makes me want to go and rewatch it. I will say, for anyone watching it, this is not for the faint of heart. I know a lot of people were disturbed by the violence. Some people found it just so absurd that they could kind of laugh it off. I think for a lot of people, it will be hard to watch. Okay, so it is gratuitously violent. There's some extremely disturbing imagery. Okay. 
All right. So that is The House that Jack Built. And that is your number five movie from the the film festival. Yeah. So what's your number five? Mine was The Wild Pear Tree. This is the... It's a three-hour-long Turkish drama. It was directed by Nuri Bilge Ceylan, if I'm getting that uh, Turkish name correct. Now, this movie did not win the Palme d'Or, but it was selected to compete for it, and I think came very close because it was the best critically-reviewed movie at Cannes. Ah, uh, right. right. So the movie that actually won the Palme d'Or was Shoplifters. A Japanese film. The Japanese movie. So that won, but uh, this movie was critically received even better than Shoplifters. And that movie came to Biff. Shoplifters didn't come to the film festival. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's too bad, but you know, you can't get everything, right? right? Now, as I said, this is a three-hour-long movie. It's definitely, you know, it's made for film festivals. Mm. You know what I mean? Like this is this is precisely the type of movie that you go see at something like this. Well, what what's the plot? What could you know be worth three hours? Well, the plot is as follows. It's a quite a simple one. It is a young man who returns to his hometown in Turkey, and he has aspirations to become a writer, mm. and he is doing his best to raise money, but it's difficult because his father has developed a gambling problem. And it's made clear throughout the long duration of this movie that his father wasn't always like this. It's just kind of something that has kind of occurred in the, the last, I guess, about like few years or so. Okay. Uh, it seems to have been getting a bit worse. But, yeah, it's just um, he's always messing up. The family has to bail him out, and he's just... It's just a hard time just getting money just to publish a novel that he wrote, mm. right? And so you wonder, well, how could that take up three hours? Well, the, the main character goes from essentially conversation to conversation, philosophical discussion to philosophical discussion, and these can go on for 15 to 20 minutes at a time, and sometimes these discussions and, and, um, and philosophical talks, they, they turn into arguments, mm. but... There's a lot of interesting stuff here to listen to. There's a lot of a lot of cool things to talk about in this movie, but it's also just really beautiful. It's so beautifully shot, especially there's one scene where he's talking to a childhood friend of his, and it's just the autumn, and it just looks like, I don't know, like something out of a video game, you know what I mean? Mm. But the colors are so saturated, too, that all of the oranges and the, the reds and the yellows and the browns that come from the trees, the leaves that are still on the trees and the, the leaves that have fallen to the ground are so are so exaggerated. And uh, all the colors are, are just really vibrant. And it's really beautiful to look at. And that, I think, was a good decision because the movie is long. And, you know, there's... You know, there's not like an action beat every 10 minutes, right? Right, right. <laughs> this is an artsy Turkish movie. And so you kind of have to have the really good visuals to go with it. And even though it was long, I mean, there were times I thought uh, it, it was running a bit long. I still, it held my attention throughout the, the duration of it. Right, right. right. Yeah, I've been asking you questions about this, but I also saw the film That's with right. you. I was at the same screening, and I remember us talking before this about, you know, there's going to be a three-hour-long Turkish film. It's the best-reviewed film from Khan. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued. Yeah. And then you mentioned the director's name. I'm like, oh no, this is the same director. <laughs> I saw his movie Winter Sleep at a previous Biff. And it was one of the the most difficult viewing experiences I've ever had because uh-huh. it was in this theater where it's it's not particularly comfortable. 
It was really long, like three hours plus, I think. And I remember just being so bored by it. Mm-hmm. I was not a fan of Winter Sleep at all. It was also very well reviewed from Khan. Yeah. I believe it might may have won the Palme d'Or yeah. that year. And so going into this, my expectations were extremely low. But I was very pleasantly surprised by this. I really enjoyed it. Uh, the This one had more of a a motivation to it, a, a propulsion to it. The, the character, the young man who's trying to become a writer is is so full of angst and, and anger at the world. But you can see that he's he's really kind of shut out from society in a lot of ways. He's, he comes from the lower class, and his upward mobility is very limited, not only by his father, but his own sort of inability to shut up. And, mm-hmm. and he always says the wrong thing, and he always upsets people. He seems kind of arrogant. And I, I just, there's something almost like Dostoevskian about this character that, that w- I found really compelling. And, you know, a lot of it has to do, this is a major theme in the movie, is youth versus experience, or right. young people and old people. And some of the people that he gets into arguments with are, you know, his father's generation. You right. Know? And they don't see eye to eye at all, whether it's about religion or whether it's about literature or anything like that. So it is, like you said, it is a movie, I guess, about angst and not necessarily just Turkish angst, mm. right? Or the the angst of the Turkish youth. But I mean, it can be a universal topic, you know? Oh, very much so. Yeah, it can definitely be a universal topic. I mean, you're seeing a lot of angst from the the youth in the United States, for instance, trying to push against the 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 establishment politicians and whatnot. Yeah, and, and this sort of working class anger at the establishment is very much a, a theme that we saw at a lot of films this year. I think it's it's maybe the universal zeitgeist right now for, mm-hmm. for every part of the world. Well, that was your number five. Let's move on to number four. Yeah. My number four was nonfiction or double lives. It has different titles by Olivier Assayas. I've been a consistent fan of Assayas's work at Biff and and I've seen a, a number of his films at Biff. I I remember his film uh, Cloud of Silmarie with uh, Juliette Binoche, fantastic film. His film Personal Shopper with Kristen Stewart, I was a big fan of. Something in the Air, uh, kind of about the 1968 May protests in France and and the youth culture around that time. This film was was a lighter film. He often deals with social topics, like he did a TV series called Carlos about Carlos the Jackal, the terrorist. This film is is kind of a, it's a hard subject, but a light take on it. It's about the publishing industry and about how it's it's kind of being threatened by, you know, digital media, ebooks and blogs and, and all this sort of online stuff that, that's making people not buy physical books and physical media. And you know, on the one hand, you have this head of a publishing company who's trying to navigate this this difficult stuff and stay, stay atop of the trends. But then you also have like a writer himself who's just trying to write books and get published and survive. You have uh, the uh, woman that the, this publishing guy is having an affair with. And, you know, she's very much involved in the digital world. She's a consultant and trying to shepherd them into this new digital age. And I think the movie does this great balancing act between, you know, making these really witty, wry comments on this sort of evolution, this change from, you know, the physical to the digital, but also finding this very human core at the center of it all. It's it's a joy to watch because it never gets bogged down in, in darkness or depression or foreboding about, you know, what's going to happen to the future. 
it always keeps this human touch, this light comedic touch. Olivier Assias is just one of the best writers going. The more I see his work, the more I, I'm just reminded of how, how gifted a writer he is. Because he can take any sort of topic and, and find this interesting blend of genres, this tonal perfection, where he's able to really you know make uh, a strong statement on it. Also, I think just his dialogue, his witty uh, back and forth between the characters is just so well done. Any movie by him is going to be good. I just know that by this point. I, I, he's one of the best directors going today. Right. So you're a big fan of Asias because he also did Personal Shopper yes. from a year or two ago, right? Yeah, 2016. Mm-hmm. And I was a big fan of that movie as well. As well as, I, I, I can't really name a bad movie by him mm-hmm. today. Um, he's just such a consistently good writer-director and maybe one of the best writer-directors at, at work today. All right, so that was the movie Nonfiction. You said it has uh, two titles? Yeah, it's known in some places as, as Double Lives, mm-hmm. and that might be a better title because it is very much about the the various affairs that the the different characters have. And, and once again, Juliette Binoche is, is a main character here, and she does a fantastic job. There's there's a scene at the end where um, they're, they're talking about uh, making a, a movie out of a novel, and or no, sorry, doing an audiobook of, of a novel that uh, this writer has, has written. And they say, maybe we should get someone famous to, to do the voiceover. And uh, with Julia Pinoche sitting there, somebody mentions like, oh, why not Julia Pinoche? And uh, she kind of says like, ah, maybe she's not that good. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's pretty good. I like it when movies do little things like that. Yeah. Um, This this is something that I realized during Biff is that sometimes you don't really know what title you should call a movie. For instance, I saw Mm -hmm. a, this is not my number four by any means, but I saw a Danish movie uh, I think you were at the same screening, actually, called The Purity of Vengeance. Mm. But the Danish title is Journal 64. Yes. And so I've been kind of thinking, I, the the English title, I mean, they're both kind of English titles. Journal 64, it's fine. And then like The Purity of Vengeance. So I'm, you're kind of at a crossroads, like, what do I actually call this movie? Right, right. I, I personally thought The Purity of Vengeance was probably a better title because mm. Journal, what is it? 64. Yeah, it just... It has no meaning if you don't know, if you don't see the movie. (laughs) Yeah, I suppose, I suppose. All right, well, my number four is going to go to uh, an upcoming movie called Arctic, right? Mm. Arctic. This is the first movie by director Joe Penna. Mm. And so that name may not sound familiar to you, but you may have known Joe Penna as something else. He was a person behind someone known as Mystery Guitar Man, Right. On YouTube. He became a big YouTuber, right? He became a big YouTuber. Mystery Guitar Man is making his his cinematic <laughs> debut with Arctic, which is, it's not too long. It's only about 90 minutes. I think it's actually under 100 minutes. Right. And it is Mads Mikkelsen freezing to death in the Arctic. <laughs> and it's just a wonderful movie. It's just yeah. a fantastic journey into the Arctic and... It's one of those things that I really appreciate about a lot of foreign movies because I think this is a, an Icelandic picture. 
right. is officially listed as an Icelandic picture. You know, picture Castaway, for instance. I, I like Castaway, but um, it's kind of typical that in a movie where someone is stranded somewhere, you've got to see, well, what happened before the plane crash? Let, let's mm. establish all of his relationships, his or her personal life, and then we're gonna, we've got to dedicate screen time to the actual incident, the shipwreck, the plane crash, the hot air balloon, whatever. And then it's going to get started on where he or she is. And then maybe that person will get rescued. And if that person is rescued, then we will see what happens after they get off. No, this movie <laughs> starts with Mads Mikkelsen in a plane crash. I mean, the plane has already crashed. He's just in the Arctic Circle already. Right. And it doesn't explain anything else. And I think that is perfect. Right, because all I really want to see is Mads Mikkelsen surviving in the Arctic Circle. Right, right, and this movie, I didn't think it needed any sort of backstory. It didn't need any sort of explanation. You know, I didn't need to know what. You know, was he running away from somewhere? You know, was mm. uh, does he have a girl waiting for him back home? You know, and things like that. And I was very appreciative that this movie just was. Mads Mikkelsen out in the Arctic trying to survive. And actually, Mads Mikkelsen, the, the real story, if there is one, is that Mads Mikkelsen's character finds a... is about to. It looks like he's about to get rescued by a helicopter, and then that helicopter crashes. But right. there's one survivor, and so Mads Mikkelsen sort of knows or he finds out where he's supposed to go, where her people are waiting for her. And the movie is his journey trying to rescue her and also himself. At the right. same time. So she's just incapacitated is this actress who went to drama school to be put in a sleeping bag for <laughs> like 90 minutes. And I believe it's a Thai actress. No, she's not Thai. I know I know what you're talking about. There is some weird script in the movie that that you see her writing. Mm -hmm. But she, in fact, is Maria Thelma Smarodotir and she's Icelandic. Oh, okay. Right, so she's okay. Icelandic. Uh, she's the one who spends the movie in a in a sleeping bag that Mads Mikkelsen drags across the Arctic. And it's just a harrowing movie. I saw one criticism from a critic who said that he would have liked to have seen more varied problems or obstacles for Mads Mikkelsen to overcome, but I disagree, and I think I thought that there were there was quite a variety for one specific biome. You know what I mean? Yes. Yeah, because you can only do so much in that one location, which they are filming on location there. It's not a green screen or anything. Mads Mikkelsen said it was the toughest shoot of his life. But um, for an Arctic setting, I thought that there were a, a, a good variety of obstacles to overcome. Well, yeah. And one of the most impressive things about the direction of this movie is that you have a YouTuber who... If you think about YouTube, it's it's about excess. It's about short attention spans and trying to get people's attention as, as quickly and as loudly as possible. And so you would expect, uh, for a movie directed by a YouTuber set in the Arctic about survival, you would expect it to be full of action and drama and just in-your-face you know, stuff, polar bear attacks left and right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and this movie is very controlled. It's subtle. It sets up every obstacle that Mads Mikkelsen has to face carefully so you know the stakes, you know what's involved. When he overcomes that obstacle, you, you celebrate it because you know what's involved. You're with him in that moment. And to have a movie be so disciplined in, in going about itself and, and, and how it's directed, it was, it was an impressive feat, especially for a first-time feature. 
it's a, it's a really brutal location shooting in Iceland. I know. I if I were to make my first feature, I would you know let's say like let let's let's film in a bar or something. <laughs> <laughs> my first movie wouldn't take place in the Arctic Circle. Right. Yeah. Right. And the visual <laughs> effects also are fantastic. I mean, seamless. You don't notice any sort of CGI trickery going on or anything. It, it looks great. Yeah, it does. So that is my number four movie, Arctic. Okay, great. Well, my number three was very highly anticipated by me this year. It was actually a a film that was financed by Netflix. This has been in production hell for decades now. I'm talking of The Other Side of the Wind by Orson Welles, the infamous final film from what some would say is the greatest filmmaker of all time. I mean, he directed Citizen Kane, which is considered by many to be the best movie of all time. He's, he was a genius. He directed so many great films, even after he fell out of favor with, with the studios. And that's a large part of the backstory and the intrigue of this film. Because after Citizen Kane and, and you know, The Magnificent Ambersons and a number of the other films, Orson Welles kind of became this journeyman where he would, you know, get work here and there. He would scramble together different financing to make these films. But he never quite had the the freedom and the power to make a film the way he made Citizen Kane. And so, you know, he, he kept experimenting with different styles. He, he got into color film after Citizen Kane uh, and, you know, other films like A Touch of Evil and, uh, you know, The Stranger and, and uh, The Trial and, and so many other great Orson Welles films. He started kind of experimenting with this really fast paced, uh, hyper-edited, really fourth-wall-breaking sort of cinema. If you've seen the movie F for Fake, that's a perfect representation of this style. It's really fast. It's disorienting. It's... It's hard to keep your bearings on it. He's he always feels like he's trying to be one step ahead of you or or try to, you know, make you almost delirious with what's going on. There's people talking over each other. It's it can be hard to watch. But I believe that the other side of the wind really represents the completion of this style. This frenetic, fast-paced style of filmmaking that Orson Welles had been experimenting with for a long time. And more importantly, it represents the fruition of Orson Welles as a filmmaker outside of the studio system. Now, a little background on this film. It's about a filmmaker, Jake Hannaford, this kind of macho veteran movie director from the golden age of Hollywood. He's played by John Huston. Fantastic performance. And he's trying to make this comeback in the era of new Hollywood. I mean, this is the 1970s. This is the era, era of like Easy Rider and, and Antonioni and all these kind of sexy new new Hollywood films. And so this director is staging this, this comeback with this movie called The Other Side of the Wind, which is very much about sex and youth and, you know, uh, kind of psychedelic colors and all this sort of stuff. And so the movie is, is looking at his last night. Uh, where he throws this birthday party for himself. He screens some of the movie. All this sort of hangers-on are are about. Uh, There's members of the press who are there. It's just this kind of wild menagerie of people. And the film's conceit is that it's kind of a found footage film. Everything you see is shot by people around Jake Hannaford, 
you know, people will happen to have a camera with them. So you're mixing formats, 8mm, 16, 35. Everything is kind of thrown together, color and black and white. It's, it's got this very grainy quality for, for the most part. And then when you actually see footage from the other side of the wind, it's got this beautiful, clear, crisp 35mm. So I guess what makes this film so interesting is there's this real dark comment on Hollywood, on you know, the future of, of media and filmmaking, and also the seeds of kind of everything we see going on today with, with media and, and social media in particular. I mean, everyone has a camera. That's ubiquitous right now. Everyone is constantly using that camera. That's also kind of a ubiquitous reality we deal with. Uh, the, the DIY aesthetic of the film is very much kind of uh, looking towards the future of, of you know, digital media and, and, you know, DSLR cameras where anyone can make a movie. As well, I, I think this sort of battle between the establishment, which is represented by, you know, all these old people from the studio era and, and Jake Hannaford himself, as well as this kind of rebellious youth culture, you know, represented by Peter Bogdanovich, who is prominent in the film, but also, you know, in cameo roles, people like Dennis Hopper and, and others. So there's this real battle between the establishment and the young. And I think this film kind of gets right in the middle of that. It's not taking either side of it. It's, it's kind of located in this dark center of it all where, you know, the establishment is, is shown to be kind of very much sexist, racist. There's a real ugliness to them, which is not only, you know, what they say, but also how they're shown. So much of this movie is just these tight close-ups of people who are not looking particularly good. I mean, John Huston looks like hell in this. Mm. He looks just really old, tired, and haggard. Yeah, it's definitely kind of late career <laughs> John Huston, isn't it? Yeah. 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 And the young, on the other hand, are, are shown to be very much vacuous. They have nothing really to say. I mean, the this movie that he's making, this kind of Antonioni inspired film is just totally meaningless there's it's empty it's it's visually nice but there's nothing going on there and a lot of the young people are kind of restless they they want to say something but they don't particularly say anything of substance well oja kodar who is the co-writer for this movie as well as an actress in this movie right and was orson welles's partner for the last few decades of his life right is is quite young in this movie but she doesn't say a word Right. You know? Right. And I guess, you know, there's this real existential comment, I think, on how, you know, at, at the end of it all, all there's going to be is, is you know, this movie screen playing to an empty audience, mm -hmm. uh, which is the final image of the film. I think Orson Welles had a real sort of handle on, on where things were going with media and, and society. And the film's comments, it's stuck with me. I'm not exactly sure what the film is about yet, but I know there's this real dark kind of underbelly to this film. It's, it's about death. It's about, you know, the future not being particularly good. And what's more, it's, it's a miracle that we, we've even seen this film because, I mean, as I mentioned, this has been in production hell for quite some time. Mm -hmm. For decades, people involved in the film have tried to, you know, get the financing together to finish it because, you know, the story goes, it was shot from about 1970 to 1975, off and on, as Orson Welles often worked. 
And the money dried up. He, he brought in different sources of financing. Uh, even the brother of the Shah of Iran was involved at one point. And he edited about 40 minutes of it, I believe, to try to raise more money before he passed away in 1985. So, you know, there have been various attempts to kind of get the money to finish it, but also get the rights to the film, which kind of were split between uh, Orson Welles' partner and his daughter, Beatrice Welles. And finally, you know, through the heroic efforts of, of a number of people, but also Netflix, which is perfect because, I mean, they are the disruptive force of the movie industry today. It's so perfect that, you know, Orson Welles, who was this disruptive force in his day, has to be kind of helped or his, his vision is completed by this other disruptive force. This movie will be streaming on Netflix soon, early November. Definitely check it out. I mean, be prepared not to love it. Mm-hmm. Be prepared to be really confused about what's going on. It it can be a harsh, discordant watch. But at its heart, there is something really important going on. And I think, you know, over time, I'm going to probably get to what this real message is at the core of it. But th- there's something really dark and unsettling at the heart of this film. Yeah, I mean, you've said a lot of the the points that I was going to cover, so we'll just move past this uh, quickly. But it is just a real marvel of editing. There was over 100 hours of footage shot uh, for it, and um, the, the like you said, the pacing is just frenetic. It's just cut after cut after cut, especially in the first third of the movie or so. But... Um, I just love the satire of New Hollywood. I actually mm-hmm. think that Orson Welles maybe didn't quite view New Hollywood with as much enthusiasm as others because the movie that is being shown just seems really pretentious. Yes. And it seems just really, um, I don't know, like faux artistic. Oh, very you much You know what so. I mean? So it just, um, I kind of like that as a comment on what uh, Orson Welles actually thought all about New Hollywood. So that was actually my number two movie, The Other Side of the Wind. So that covers my number two. So I'll reveal my number three movie is the new Yi Chang-dong movie, Burning. Ah. Uh, this was, you know, you know, you, you know me, I really love the dark Korean dramas, mm-hmm. right? So I'm a big fan of Old Boy and Agashi, especially Pak Chan-wook. One of my favorite movies from last year's Biff was one of the new Korean movies coming out called Taklamakan which was a dark, gritty Korean murder story. Mm -hmm. And this follows in that same vein, all right? So we've got Burning, and the the plot of the movie is that you've got this kind of uh, really soft-spoken... I, I, I thought he was just a spineless protagonist, right? He just doesn't really know how to stand up for himself or anything like that. So there's this character who meets a childhood friend, and she is just kind of the uh, the, the manic pixie dream girl mm. trope right there. And um, they they grow close again, and then she goes off on a trip, and it's clear that it, at this point it looks like they're really into each other. But she comes back from her vacation with this new guy who's played by Steven Yun who you may remember from The Walking Dead. Yeah. And he's, um, his name is Ben. I mean, he's speaking Korean the whole time. But his name is Ben. Maybe he's supposed to be one of those, those um, what is the word, like, guepos? Gyopo. Gyopo, yeah, that's, that's it. Maybe he's supposed to be a gyopo. A Korean-American. A Korean-American, that's right. But he's something's just kind of off about him. He seems really creepy. And it's revealed to the main character later. He shares that his hobby is burning greenhouses. Ah. Right. And the this is significant because the main character has sort of taken charge of his father's house. His father was a farmer, but he has some legal troubles, so he has to kind of be the caretaker of the house. So 
you know, one of his greenhouses stands to get burned by Ben. Mm. And eventually the the girl earlier in the movie, Hamie, uh, disappears, not just in the story, but from the movie as well. Uh. And so the whole question is, did Ben murder her? And that's kind of the, the last half especially is, did Ben murder her? And the reason why... I was such a fan of this is that it brought back to mind to me movies like Rear Window and mm. Shadow of a Doubt and movies like The Third Man, just sort of mysterious bad guys, mysterious circumstances, uh, just uncovering a mystery that I just was that I just had such a good time being involved in. Right. I thought this movie was really well paced and the characters were intriguing. Steven Yun, it was so good to see him do something other than, you know, The Walking Dead. For instance, and to see him actually whip out his Korean was pretty cool too. Yeah, and yeah, Burning was one of my favorite movies that I saw at Biff this year, specifically for the atmosphere, the pacing, the story, the the performances were excellent, and yeah, one that I'm not likely to forget for a long time. I also enjoyed Burning. I, I believe it's based on a Murakami s- short story. Yeah, Barn Burning. Right, right, and I believe Yi Chang Dong is the best Korean director. Of all time. I mean, his his first movie, Green Fish, is one of my favorite movies. Uh, my favorite Korean movie, definitely. And I also enjoyed this because, uh, as we mentioned before with The Wild Pear Tree, there is this real sense of working class rage that appears across a lot of these movies. And, and Burning is a great example of that. In the Q&A for the film, the director, Yi Chang-dong, mentioned that, that the title, Burning, it not only refers to, you know, the burning passion of, of the love, uh, uh, the burning of the greenhouses, but also the burning rage of the working class. There's an image of Donald Trump on a TV early on in the film. And, and I think that that's kind of a clue that this is going to be about the, the, the working out of the rage of the working class. And uh, the, the main character, Jong Su's father, has been arrested, as you mentioned, for kind of violently reacting to some sort of you know, injustice about his farm. And so I I guess it's just interesting to see how this plays out in different contexts. But also as a genre movie, as a thriller, I found this movie quite interesting as well. It is kind of Hitchcockian in in a sense. I guess I wasn't as satisfied by how it played out, especially the final act of this film, because I felt like at a certain point the movie loses its bearings it, it's very much about this kind of tr- love triangle in the first two thirds. And then by the last third, it, it seems to kind of morph into more of a, a standoff uh, between these two characters and, and the mystery of between them. Uh, I, I guess I, I was kind of missing the, the Haiti character, the, the, the love interest character. Yeah. Oh, Hamie. Yeah. Hamie. Yes. Yeah. And Without that, I felt like, yeah, the movie starts to lose its bearings a little bit. I would have liked to have seen her come back in some way or at least, you know, remain at the center of this film. Nonetheless, a very interesting film, and and I definitely enjoyed it. So my number two was a movie called Cold War. I was really anticipating this film quite a lot. Uh, The director was uh, Pavel Pavlikowski, who directed a, a big film a few years back that was uh, nominated for the foreign language category in the Oscars. But I believe this one is, is much stronger. It's about two lovers who, you know, kind of fall in love in, in Poland during the onset of the Cold War and through, you know, various political vagaries are, are kind of separated. 
they're both musicians and uh, Joanna Kulig plays the lead and she's just gorgeous beautiful and perfect for this role she's kind of this fiery young musician uh it, it kind of starts off with with you know these two people doing a tour of the countryside to bring in all these musicians for this government program to kind of put them all together and do this tour of this this course and she eventually kind of Joanna Kulig eventually falls in love with her kind of mentor and the leader of this program who's played by uh Thomas Cobb and their their love is is very interesting i mean it's very passionate it's very immediate but as they get separated uh the film kind of it, it keeps going the thomas cott character continues his life in in france i believe as a musician and she eventually kind of enters his life they they become separated again and it, it's kind of off and on again and while this is going on, there's this incredibly, you know, brilliant score that's going on, a very jazzy score often. And the score itself is incredibly evocative. It starts out with more of a traditional chorus songs and peasant songs, but uh, eventually morphs into kind of a jazzier, more contemporary score. And this kind of mirrors the atmosphere of the film. It's it's a film that, that takes its time, that kind of really... Uh, soaks in the atmosphere the cinematography is absolutely gorgeous black and white i mean you could just take any still from this and and frame it it looks beautiful and yeah i I guess just the the luxuriating in the atmosphere is, is just so enjoyable to see but also the dynamic between the two main characters the the love between them it's it's both kind of quiet and contemplative but also just like seething with passion I, I enjoyed it because it wasn't overdramatic. It wasn't melodramatic. It wasn't in your face. But it was still very compelling. It's it's a movie I really want to see again just because uh, not only the atmosphere, but, but this kind of... I, I, I guess I'm still trying to understand exactly what the message of the film is. I would say, you know, off the top of my head, because so many films kind of looked at the... The political situation of the day, the the rage of the working class against the establishment. I think this film kind of takes a, a remove from that because, I mean, politics is very much at the heart of this film. Cold War, the conflict, the fact that people are separated by borders and and, you know, because they're not playing along with the the Polish government's program, you know, they get separated. But. It's also finding something outside of that, something outside of the political, which is very refreshing to see today. I mean, so much of of everything has become absorbed with politics and social commentary. It's nice to see a movie that really kind of tries to escape that, to find an outside to that, and to, to kind of really focus on, you know, what you have to endure if you really love someone. I had the awful predicament of having to choose between this and Arctic because uh, it was on the same night and in the same time slot. Right. And um, because uh, my wife also really wanted to see Arctic, and I, I wanted to see Arctic as well, but I also really wanted to see Cold War. I ultimately chose Arctic, so I unfortunately missed Cold War. That's one of my... Uh, if I have any regrets from Biff, it's not necessarily choosing Arctic over Cold War, but just not being able to see Cold War at right. all, just because the other times that it was screening just didn't mesh with uh, with my with other things that I was doing, you know? Well, definitely check it out. It's fantastic. And I'm absolutely in love with Joanna Kulig now. 
<laughs> All right. Well, that's that's definitely one to keep an eye out for then. You've already covered my number two because we talked about The Other Side of the Wind. That uh, was yes. my number two movie. So I'm going to move straight to my number one. And um, I know that you're a big fan of this as well. I'm talking about Gaspar Noé's Climax, right? That's also my number that's one. That's your number one as well. So Gaspar Noé returns with a movie called Climax. It is set in 1996. And it's claims to be based on a true story. I've done some research into it. I haven't found anything about it yet. Maybe mm. once the movie is kind of released um, in a more general release, mm-hmm. maybe enough interest in the backstory will be revealed and people will write about it. But mm. as of now, I haven't found much to indicate that it is a true story. And if it is a true story, it just seems like it was some sort of just news story one day, you know? Mm. But... Um, it's about a group of French dancers. This is very much a French movie, by the way. Yeah. Uh, they say this like proudly presenting a French movie or something. <laughs> and the first shot you see is this glittering uh, French flag. Mm. But um, it's a bunch of French dancers in 1996, and they are kind of on a retreat. It's kind of, they're isolated in the middle of winter. They're in this sort of black box theater This slash... abandoned school sort of thing? Yeah, it's kind of like, it's a black box theater. It's also a dormitory Right. But uh, they're having this rehearsal and the opening dance number is incredible. It's just this choreographed dance number. And right away, what you notice in climax is the visuals. There's a whole lot of red everywhere. Mm. And, you know, you're going to be in for a bad time because there are some interviews with each of the characters and some of the movies and books that you see lying to the side are things like Suspiria and a book on schizophrenia (laughs) and you know you're going to be in for a hard time after that but the dance rehearsal goes really well they're about to have this big party and there's a lot of sangria there but someone has unknowingly you know unknown unbeknownst to everyone else has spiked that sangria with LSD And the rest of the movie is them dealing with the consequences of that, right? Right. So there's a very big difference between taking LSD when you are planning to do it, when you are choosing to do it in a specific setting of your choice with people of your choice and just having it forced upon you when you had no intention of wanting to to take this drug. And um, what the movie is generally about, I think, is a safe space descending into madness, Right. Someone early, uh, a character early in the movie says, you know, I feel safe here. I feel really safe here. But by Mm -hmm. the end of the movie, it's it's just an awful hellscape of what what goes on. And so it's got a terrifying plot. The dancing is just amazing. I really love the dancing all the way through the the choreography at the beginning was great. There are other dance pieces throughout the movie, but those were all choreo, uh, not choreographed, excuse me, improvised by the dancers as ways to as ways for them to express their own selves. So mm. whether it's choreographed or improvised, the dancing is just really beautiful. The camera work was really fun to watch because it's such an ensemble cast. The camera will focus on one character for a while, and for you know the next two minutes, this is who the movie is about. Then that camera, that character will walk off screen. The camera will kind of move over to someone else and for the next five minutes we're going to check in on what this character is doing and now she's the main character or he's the main character incredible long takes as well yes some really long takes right so everything is going through in um in quite long takes but a lot of the sort of segments that go on like i said you've got the 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 interview segment at the beginning then you've got the the opening choreographed dance number then you've got conversations with each character Mm. or you know you know two pairs of characters each Mm -hmm. 
and each one will go on for quite a while. You know, right. they're kind of like chapters in a book. You know, if, uh, right. if Climax were a book, they would be defined as chapters, I suppose. So that is my number one choice is uh, Climax. It, this one is also quite hard to watch at times. I thought oh, this yes. is also a movie that's not for the faint of heart. But if you know anything about Gaspar Noé, then that might be something that you've come to expect, right? Yes. And I, I'll just add three things that I, I, I want to mention about this film. I, I, I agree with everything you're saying. Number one, this movie uses non-professional actors for the most part. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are some professional performers here. But it seems to follow the the maxim that it's better to do a dance movie with professional dancers and non-professional actors than the other way around. And this proves that to be true. Absolutely. Uh, the, the dancers are, are fantastic at dancing, but their performances are incredible, too. And it's a real testament to their work. Number two, I think this never stops being a dance movie, even after they stop dancing. Yeah, that's right, because, I mean, even though there aren't any choreographed dance scenes anymore or, uh, you know, uh, more traditional sort of what you would recognize as dance, there is still kind of a um, like a sense of rhythm to the whole thing. Absolutely. The, the way the, the characters move, even though they're not dancing, it, it's very much a, a rhythmic you know, sort of ballet between the camera and the characters. It's it's this sort of celebration of movement, uh, not only in its in its beauty, but also its its darkness, and just how gracefully the camera moves through these incredibly nightmarish situations. It's it's this kind of spiraling down, and things just get incredibly worse. I mean, you you think you have your bearings early on, and then. You know, something happens and you're, you're just slowly sucked into this nightmare where you you really have no sense of where you are or what's going to happen next. There's this real sense that anything could happen. Yeah, the pacing of this movie is quite good because as the characters are getting higher, you know, things are just degrading bit by bit, you know? Like, yeah. you kind of start to see, um, like, characters kind of come in and out of focus every now and then, just very briefly. Because, mm-hmm. you know, it's kind of like you're starting to get that pre-high shimmer Right. Going on. Right. And, you know, the music is fantastic in this as well. But I think what this movie is ultimately about, and this is the third thing I'll mention, is as, you know, with Cold War, it's it's about these people trying to escape the political and, and, and find this sort of outside to their, you know, political trappings. This movie kind of is the inverse of that. It shows that no matter how hard you try to escape from social and political realities, they will come and find you mm-hmm. and in the most violent of ways. Because early on, they set up these these interviews, you know, direct to the camera, interviews with the characters. Later on, after the, the dance sequence, they have a number of extended sequences of the characters just talking about the other people in the room. And a lot of these were improvised. And we see that, you know, what appears to be this this well-harmonized, interracial, intergender group of people who are just celebrating each other. There are, there are black, white characters. There are gay and straight characters. There, there's every sort of, you know, person that you could imagine. It, it appears to be harmonious and, and, you know, everyone's getting along and it's it's overcoming differences. And then after the dancing, you, you start to see these rumblings of, of trouble. You know, one person says something about another guy and, oh, he's not a good guy. He mm-hmm. sleeps with everyone. And, and it, it descends into this this sort of petty bickering. But then, you know, when they start taking drugs, all sorts of, you know, the the thin veneer of civility just is ripped off. Yeah, it seemed like it was fragile to begin with. 
Right. You know? And all these kind of uh, racial and social tensions that are underneath rise up to the surface. They burst through. And, you know, racial tension, uh, sexual tension between the characters, uh, tension in terms of gender, it just all bursts through. And, you know, even in this isolated environment, shut off from everything, where people should be able to get along, they can't. And I believe this is Gaspar Noe's way of kind of saying that you can't escape these things. They are part of our lives. You have to deal with them head on or they will come and find you in one way or another. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. So Climax is your number one movie as well. Then, absolutely. Right? All yeah. right. So Climax is both of our number one movies. So that is one that you should absolutely keep an eye out. Get the new Gaspar Noé movie, Climax. I'm not uh, terribly familiar with a lot of other stuff that Gaspar Noé has made, but I'm definitely going to familiarize myself with his work now. Yeah. yeah. It's weird to say that this is probably the easiest movie of his filmography <laughs> to watch. <laughs> All right. So that speaks to a lot, too. Um, to his other movies then. All right, Tim, thanks so much for being back here with me, and let's uh, do this again. Yeah, for sure, for sure. It's been great to talk to you, and um, we'll be back soon. The Now It's Dark Movie podcast can be found wherever you get your podcasts, so we hope that you listen and subscribe. Don't forget to find us on YouTube, and we'll see you again next time.